An underwhelming NFC Championship leads to a thrilling AFC title game as the stage is set for Super Bowl 57. I'll recap the good, bad, and ugly as the Eagles and Chiefs are the last two teams standing in the NFL. The Lakers were robbed in Boston on Saturday night, or maybe not. The Bruins have cooled off since the last time we met. Have they come back to earth? Novak Djokovic had no problem winning his 10th Australian Open, which sets up a fascinating scenario leading into the next Grand Slam major of the year. The month may be coming to an end, but the podcast is just about ready to begin. It's all coming up, but first, this message. Jay Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rolls Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. The last Monday of January kicks off the first of two pods to cover the end of the month and the start of February as I share my thoughts, feelings, and hot takes on everything that's happening in the world of sports as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Now we could focus all of our attention on the Super Bowl, which is going to be an eternity from here to two weeks from yesterday, and we have a lot to get into as far as the games yesterday. One good, one bad, as I go through it, the AFC and NFC Championship games, which overall, I'd have to say it was good. The first game was a disaster, and the second game, although it wasn't a classic, yes, it did have some thrills, the officiating was eh, but... At least it balanced out the first part of the day where you actually had no shot once the quarterback went out of the game. And that's crazy because when we look at Brock Purdy, a lot of people thought coming into this game, the clock had to strike 12 to see this streak that he was on ever since he got under center in that game against the Miami Dolphins that the guy has pretty much been infallible. And the first pass of the game where he gets knocked on the elbow the sack stripped by Hassan Reddick, and then from that point on, the game pretty much went out to sea because it was just all Philadelphia after that, despite the fact that they tried to hang in there a little bit in the second quarter after tying the game, and even with Josh Johnson coming in, trying to at least stay competitive, but we just knew it was a matter of time before this was going to go up in smoke, that the Eagles were going to just take off, and the game was pretty much a bore. And that's where we're going to begin Of course, all the talk is going to be about Cincinnati and Kansas City. I know the Bengal fans in my life, they have to be crestfallen right now. My guy, Jai in Baltimore, who's been on the podcast, as well as my good old friends, Risa Saslow, as well as Brian Murray. I know you're hurting today. That was a tough one to swallow, and we have plenty to dissect when it comes to that AFC Championship game. And this is going to be a quick package here with the NFC, because once Purdy went down, And even with Josh Johnson, and I get he's been a traveling salesman, been on a million NFL teams, has latched on to various organizations over the course of his career, and you can't fault Johnson. He tried to go in there to do what was best, and you know that Kyle Shanahan, the coach of the Niners, was going to put forth a very particular and safe game plan for the quarterback just to get by, just to keep his team in the game. And even though the 
team was kept in for at least a quarter and change because the 49ers were able to tie the game at 7 after the Eagles opening drive where you had the big catch there on that, what was it, 4th and 3 where Devontae Smith leaped one-arm grab and smartly for Devontae Smith to bang his fist together to get to the line of scrimmage, take the next snap, and I understand people could get on the officiating there, but that is a tough call, I guess even for the back judge, because as Devontae Smith was trying to corral that pass, and obviously it wasn't evident to the official to call it incomplete, and smart enough for the Eagles to get to the line of scrimmage to run another play, therefore you had a scenario where they couldn't review it, or at least the Niners couldn't throw out the challenge flag, because it would have been ruled incomplete, and the Eagles were able to score, Miles Sanders punching it into the end zone, but even after that, with the Niner quarterback out and Josh Johnson in, pretty much where the game turned was at 7-7, and the Eagles were marching along to where they were able to get a bunch of defensive penalties, including a scenario where they had a roughing the kicker, where the defense and even the special teams imploded, that led to the touchdown to make it 14-7, after that, You had the scenario where Josh Johnson then fumbled the ball off of the snap there from center while in shotgun. And then from there, they were able to march on down the field. Another scenario where you had a defensive penalty, which set them up. And the next thing you know, punching it into the end zone again, 21-7. And you knew from that point on that the game was over. There was no way that the Niners were going to come back because of the scenario with Purdy and his elbow as it was diagnosed that there had to be an issue where he couldn't even throw the ball more than five yards and as it was when he came back into the game after Josh Johnson was concussed he was only able to average 1.5 yards per throwing attempt and he did not make a lot of attempts when he came back into the game it was going to be run heavy as you saw whether it was going to be Christian McCaffrey Debo Samuel they tried a little trickery there even late in the game with McCaffrey trying to throw a pass downfield to nobody and that's the type of game it was going to be pretty much from the Time that Purdy was out of the game, but even more so, 14-7, although Johnson tried to make an effort there, but after that fumble and the touchdown, you can forget it. The game was just in cruise control after that. It was unwatchable, and you had the monster first half by Reddick, who had the two sacks, including the fumble recovery, and then you had the awful challenge by Shanahan. Why was he even thinking about throwing the flag there when he knew that the ball was already knocked out of his hand? I get it that... Purdy's arm was moving forward, but the ball's already out. So even when he punched the ball up in the air, it's not going to count. That was a terrible challenge. I understand it was desperation at that point because he was trying to get the ball back. But still, you knew that that was not going to be overturned. So I thought that was terrible on his part. And then the Eagles, what could you say? They were just able to go ahead and cruise to a 31-7 victory. Jalen Hurts, a lot of people, including myself, wanted to see how Hurts was going to do against his defense. But because they got out to that lead and pretty much were in the comfort zone, other than the late third quarter rally, if you want to call it that, where Jalen Hurts, they finally gave him a chance to run with the ball, didn't do much with his arm, and yes, did take a couple of shots there, and you kind of thought to yourself, if you're an Eagle fan, why late in the third quarter are you having your quarterback who has a shoulder injury and going up against a tough physical defense, even though they've been trailing pretty much from the middle of the second quarter. But why would you put yourself or your quarterback in harm's way to see if he could either re-injure that shoulder or worse, a leg injury, knowing that you just had to buy time, just hand it off to Miles Sanders, just try to make short passes, easy plays to get to the end of that game. But with Jalen Hurts taking a couple of shots, even getting pushed out of bounds where you got a personal foul, And even with Hurts getting into the end zone there to make it 28-7, it was a game that one more time, you were just standing by waiting for 6.30 for the AFC Championship game at that point. And then even with the scenario regarding the end of the game where you had the cheap shots there, Trent Williams and Kevon Wallace both getting ejected, Williams just taking Wallace and pretty much throwing him around like a rag doll, and then you had benches clearing and Kind of brought me back to the days of hockey in the 80s. But of course, NFL is nowhere near where you could have a scrum. God forbid you could have scenarios with helmets getting thrown around as we've seen in the past. Miles Garrett. But that was a game that you were just waiting for it to end. And just hoping with your fingers crossed, getting to an AFC Championship game. Which would have been a lot more competitive. A lot more drama. And 
definitely just a 180 compared to what we saw there between 3 and 6 o'clock there on Fox. And pardon the background noise as there's construction going around as from time to time we'll hear in this neck of the woods. So my apologies for whatever the hell's going on in this building. As you could hear just the drilling or just vibrations going on all over the place which was unexpected and unbeknownst to me. So early apologies to those listening from time to time if you do hear that. Of course there's nothing that I can do to control that. As it stops right then and there. But anyway with that being said the Niners... They're going to have an offseason, which will be fascinating to say the least because you wonder whether or not Brock Purdy, if his issue, they did diagnose it as a UCL injury. They don't know if it's a full tear, partial tear, whatever it may be. But you have to wonder with the status of Trey Lance, is he going to be your guy as a high draft pick to be the one that's under center from 2023 and beyond? Because it looks like Brock Purdy is a guy that's here to stay and the Niners may have to push all their chips to the middle of the table in order for Purdy to be their starting quarterback moving forward. I would think there's going to be a hotly contested competitive competition between Lance and Purdy to see who gets the starting job. We know Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be gone and onto another team, quite possibly the Jets, but that's for another month from now. But the Niners still have the window, which is not even cracked open. It is wide open for them to go through. We know about their defense. We know about the offensive players. I get it, the salary cap may have something to do with that, which I'm not fully invested on what the cap situation is for the Niners, but next year, I would think that they will be the favorite to come out of the NFC, I get it that people in Philadelphia could think otherwise, but a lot of people, I'm sure, will look at 2023, depending on what happens in this offseason, and of course, that quarterback competition is going to be huge as to whether or not the Niners could be the favorite in the NFC next year. And if you're the Eagles... I get it. Jalen Hurts didn't really have his fingerprints on this game. It was all about Purdy being gone and the Eagles being able to march on, get big drives. They did get the penalties, like I said, from the Niner defense, special teams, etc. as they were deplorable in that second quarter and pretty much set them up for a game which was a rocking chair victory. No other way to cut it, no other way to slice it. That's your NFC Championship game in a small nutshell. And we have to wait and see what's going to happen with Lane Johnson. He retore his groin, and that's going to be huge when it comes to the Super Bowl because what he's going to go up against, considering what you saw there yesterday, and I understand the Cincinnati Bengal defensive line, or excuse me, their offensive line was from Swiss cheese, but with Chris Jones, Frank Clark and company, and not having Lane Johnson there as your right tackle, that is going to be one of the big storylines going into the Super Bowl as I got ahead of myself already putting the Chiefs there. And we all know that they won the AFC Championship yesterday, but without breaking the game down, but already putting the cart before the horse, that's going to be a huge loss if by any means necessary that they can't scotch tape bubblegum or wrap around his legs some gaff tape or duct tape to seal that groin. But I don't know. Lane Johnson, that's going to be a huge loss there on that right side of the offensive line. Not only just for pass protection, but also for their run game because we know how stout the Eagle run game is. So that's what we got with the first game as far as the nightcap. This was a very good game. Came down to the wire and it really boiled down to those two plays at the very end. And I know we could talk about a lot of different things with the officiating in reference to the fourth and one, which I thought was a good call where Andy Reid threw the challenge flag, where Marquez Valdez-Scantling had reached out to get the first down there. And a lot of people thought that it was inconclusive. But as you could see, it looked like he was able to break the first down marker. And again, that was a very good challenge by Andy Reid. Later on, you had the clock error issue where they had to replay that third and nine, although it meant nothing when you think about it. But still, you had that. The punt return, Sky Moore, which is obviously a huge play, not the biggest play, But it looked like there was a block in the back which wasn't called, which would have brought the penalty back deep into the Kansas City Chief zone or territory. And then you had the big third and four where Patrick Mahomes, who had to run out of bounds, who not only had to stop the clock, but also the Bengal linebacker Joseph Osai, who was phenomenal in that second half, Pushed Mahomes out of bounds, 15 yards on sportsmanlike penalty, and then it looked like he tore his ACL on the play. 
So talk about literally adding insult to injury or maybe in reverse, injury to insult. And then it just boiled down to Harrison Butker kicking that 45-yard field goal to ice the game. And that is your AFC Championship. Of course, I'll go backwards to discuss certain things, but it all boiled down to that fourth quarter, to those plays. And even with the Bengals having opportunities, they had a couple of drives where they could have Extended plays, especially right after the two-minute warning when they got that third and 16 to Hayden Hurst and you thought maybe that they would try to move the chains, get themselves past midfield and set themselves up for an Evan McPherson game-winning field goal that we saw last year in overtime in that building where the second-year player has not missed a field goal in postseason play. And Burrow, who played very well in the game, wasn't great. But certainly gutted it out and had to where the offensive line from jump was just deplorable. They couldn't get the running game going as you saw there with Joe Mixon. He had his biggest carry in the game late there in the fourth quarter and it was about, what, eight yards? Didn't do much on the ground. Burrow was scrambling and pretty much surviving as he was trying to fight for his life with the siege by the aforementioned Chris Jones, Frank Clark, etc. And... This game is all going to be hinged, unfortunately, for the Bengal fans on the shoulders and the back of one number 15 in red and gold, and that is Patrick Mahomes, because what he did in this game, and I get it, a lot of people are fatigued with the Chiefs, five straight championship games, another Super Bowl, third time in four years, etc. We see him in the State Farm commercials, we see him all over the place. But yesterday, between the white lines from 6.40 to about 10 o'clock, he was as heroic, as gutty, and was the heart of a champion that we have not seen and thought that we were going to see a guy that was hobbled as we saw, that his mobility was limited, but when he had to make the biggest play of the game, he did so on third and four to get the first down and then tack on the 15 yards, which set them up for the field goal. And that was going to be key. We knew his ankle was going to be enormous. And I'll say this one more time between now and the game 13 days from this very moment. That high ankle sprain is not going away. I don't care what kind of treatment he gets. I don't care if he gets stem cell in the ankle. It doesn't matter because as we all know, high ankle sprains never heal in season or over two weeks. More so, it takes six to eight weeks to get those suckers healed. And even then, psychologically, you're going to be wondering whether or not one cut a little happy feet in the pocket where you're wondering or worrying about linesmen falling on top of you. That is an injury that never goes away. So that's something that even with his performance yesterday and having just one of the big time performances and what he did, not only just trying to move out of the pocket and scramble for that first down and extend plays, things of that nature. And you saw he was limited throughout. But in that moment where they actually had to have it, And getting that penalty on top of it set themselves up to win a Super Bowl. And if you're the Bengals, I know that this is a tough one to swallow. And I said this the other day. I get it that the bulletin board material leading up to the game, whether it was Mike Hilton with the whole Burrow head, and even with the Cincinnati mayor chiming in, talking about Patrick Mahomes needs to take a paternity test because who his daddies are, the Bengals. I mean, that was just inexcusable. I understand you want to have a little friendly banter between the mayors there of each city, but for him to come out and say something like that, and he had to retract that heading into the weekend and certainly had to eat crow yesterday with those comments. And as you saw there with Travis Kelsey in the post game, Burrow had my ass and also whatever he said, my jabroni to the Cincinnati mayor. That was one that I'm sure he would love to take back times 10 But think about this, between the mayor, Mike Hilton, and I would think maybe not the whole team, but the arrogance of the team after beating Buffalo the way they did, and I talked about this one more time on Thursday, that they had to bring that same energy to this game, that the swag and even the overconfidence, and Mike Hilton had some penalties in the game, and even though the Bengal defense was valiant and gave all of their efforts to trying to slow down Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. And we all know who the weapons are, but you had big games there by Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And they were able to get the performance there by Isaiah Pacheco, who had some good runs and decent plays, as well as Sky Moore with that 
punt return, but with the Bengals having just a little bit too much swag and overconfidence, as I like to say, and I haven't said this in quite some time, karma never forgets an address. And those are things that as much as you want to say that, and as much as you want to just put it out there in the world that, oh, we've owned the Chiefs over the last 13 months and we've beaten them to a drum and we've, and they've only beaten them by a field goal in each game. So it's not as if they've beaten them soundly in each of those three performances before yesterday. But you know that anytime that you're going to rattle the cage or anytime that when you feel like you want to puff out your chest, then the Bengals had a right. But you never want to do that leading up to a moment where everybody picked the Bengals all week and everybody thought that with the injury to Mahomes that there was no way that Mahomes was going to perform at a top level. And as we saw there yesterday, he left his guts and everything out on the Arrowhead turf where they took back Arrowhead and not Burrowhead. And I hope that that's a lesson to be learned because anytime that you're going to put out that type of energy, you have to back it up. And we've seen the Bengals back it up against the Chiefs before, but you knew it was a matter of time before the Chiefs were finally get over that hurdle, get over that hump to win a game against the Bengals because although as equal as they may be with rosters and you probably have to give a slight edge to the Chiefs, but we all know that the Bengals, as evidence, we've seen them beat them three times here well over a calendar year. But you figured that Mahomes was just burning and dying to get into this game. There was no way that he was not going to play this game. And I'm sure that that stuck in his brain and in his chest all week to know that in order for him to get to that Super Bowl and even to get over the hump of beating a Bengal team, he had to do whatever it takes to win this game. And he did that and then some. And kudos to him. Because what you saw there was a performance. Is it one for the ages? I won't go as far as saying that. But if you ever questioned what is in his chest and what's between his ears... That got erased after last night. And I know my Bengal fans are hurting today. And they're going to be hurting for another six, seven, eight months until opening kickoff there in the second Sunday of September. But this was a game that you could have won. I'm not going to say you should have won. And I would have loved to not have come down to that unsportsmanlike conduct bio side there. And he was hurting after the game as well. Talking about I got to play better. And he was consoled by Sam Hubbard and a lot of his teammates had his back. And Osai just played his heart out as well, especially in that second half. But what could have been certainly is going to be on the brains of the team, organization, etc. Knowing that they have a lot of guys to sign, including Joe Burrow, who's going to be going into his fifth year, I believe. Let me think. One, two, three. Well, he's going to be due for an extension this offseason. That I know. And who knows? With the Bengals, of course they're going to pay him. There's no way they're not going to pay him. But you got to pay all the other guys, whether you're Jamar Chase down the road, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. That was a big injury as he left the game with a leg issue. And they were able to double team either Chase or Higgins, where you saw a lot of Hayden Hurst, especially on that third and 16 play that I mentioned earlier. But the Bengals, they're going to be formidable based on who they got under center at quarterback. As long as he's there, he is the, by far, heartbeat, soul, blood, guts of that team. And as long as he's there, and he has to have the town around him. And I believe Mixon's also going to be up for a contract too. So the Bengals, they're going to have some big time questions, whether it's this offseason or the next. But this core, as we see it, may not be around for a lot longer than past this upcoming year. So that's something you got to keep in mind there. If this window that we've talked about, and we've seen this with the Chiefs here, with the five state championship games, and now for the Bengals to get back-to-back, and with the Burrow-Mahomes, who knows what that's going to be like as far as a rivalry down the road. Could it be the new Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, as we saw in the previous decade and beyond? But if you're a Bengal fan, as tough as that game was, you got a guy that is by far... Someone that's going to take you to the promised land, whether it's going to be on his back, on his shoulders, legs, heart, guts, etc. And as long as you have him there, flanked with decent amount of talent, of course you want to have all pro talent everywhere, but the Bengals should be around here at least for the next five, six years. 
So it's not as if they're going to be going anywhere, but that was a bitter pill to swallow there last night in Arrowhead. And the officiating, I know Ron Torbert, I don't know why his crew is in that game. They shouldn't be in the magnitude, and not that I follow the officials like I did once upon a time, which I pretty much by face, I could tell you who all the officials are, who's good, who's bad, etc. I know Bill Vinovich, who I think is probably the best official in the game or referee. He officiated one of the games last weekend, so you're not going to see him here. Off the top of my head, I don't even know who your Super Bowl official is if they haven't even announced it. I think by now they usually do, or maybe it's going to be the week leading into the Super Bowl, but Torbert's crew was not good, and even though they got right on a couple of things, but that clock era, although they did the right thing there, but that was one where getting an extra play there, what if they completed that, marched down the field, scored a touchdown, and the game ended on that particular series? As it was, and thankfully it did not turn out to be the case. That was a scenario where they had to punt after that, where they redid that third and nine. But the officiating, even in the first game, wasn't really great too. They had the issue with Brett Kern on his punt where it looked like it hit one of the the Fox sky cams. It looked like it hit off one of the cables. Kind of hard to detect. I couldn't really see it that well. But obviously that play did not affect the outcome of the game as we talked about. The Eagles pretty much didn't matter what could have happened there. You could have had Joe Montana come back at quarterback and the Niners still wouldn't have had a chance to win that game. So now as we get ready for a Super Bowl where I'll go through a couple of storylines now and we have two weeks to talk about this. In fact, I'm not going to preview this until a week from this coming Thursday. So we have plenty of time to get into it. There's no need to even break down anything other than Kansas City, Philadelphia. We know it's Andy Reid against his former team. That's the first storyline that sticks out. You have the Kelsey brothers, although they're not going at one another because Jason Kelsey, the center for the Eagles, of course, plays offense. And we know what Travis Kelsey does on the Kansas City offense. So first time you can have two brothers. I believe they said that two brothers. And I tried to think about that over the course of time. But you didn't have Rondé Barber versus Tiki Barber in the Super Bowl. Of course, they played in the same conference. But knowing that you're going to have both of these guys on the representative teams for the Super Bowl, Going up against one another, you're going to have that angle to talk about. For the first time in Super Bowl history, you'll have two black quarterbacks face off against one another. Two number one seeds since 2017. Ironically, the Eagles were the one team that made it there when they beat Minnesota to get to the Super Bowl. The other team was New England that year when they beat Jacksonville. So the first time you have one seeds there playing against one another since that year. And a lot more to get into as we have 13 days to chew on this. The NFL has to have their bye week. With all the pomp and circumstance, with travel day down to the Glendale, Arizona, to the convention centers, to Radio Road, to media day, media night, this, that, the third. So much that we're going to be up to our eyeballs in between now and even next Thursday on the podcast. So sit back, kick back as we just await and count down the seconds to Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. A couple of interesting news and notes here in the NFL, and I don't want to go too far into this one. Just like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago with Tom Brady that I said to you guys and gals, wake me up where Tom Brady goes to play in 2023. I don't want to hear about speculation. I don't want to hear about these rumors, whether it's Josh McDaniels in Vegas or maybe even Stephen Ross in Miami or some surprise team. I know Rex Ryan came out and had a surprise team. I don't want to hear it, okay? Just tell me where he's going to go Wake me up, and then I'll break it down as to what that's going to affect not only him, the team, the conference, etc., and that's it. And the same's going to go for Aaron Rodgers. Because now, the report came out yesterday where it looks like the Packers are going to want to part ways with the longtime quarterback. That maybe they're sick of the shenanigans, they're sick of him trying to buy his time to figure out what he wants to do, and yes, he's owed $50 million and... Yes, he wants to be a part of the Packers, but at the same time, he wants to win again. I don't want to hear all that. We know the scenario when it comes to an aging quarterback who's going to be a first ballot roller skates into Canton for the Hall of Fame, but I don't want to hear the soap opera, the drama, where he's going to go, what's going to happen, how they're going to trade him, what picks are going to get back, is it too much, is it too little? I don't want to hear it. Just wake me up where Aaron Rodgers is, and I'll break it down as far as Okay, he's on this team with these weapons in this division, in this conference, and what are his chances? Then we can talk about it then. 
Until then, I don't want to hear it. That's it. I'm sick of it. This regurgitated narrative, which you know I do not like to go down, and I understand it's great for ratings and great for this and great for that, but I'm sure the good NFL fan and the die-in-the-wool NFL fan, which I'm sure a majority of you out there are, don't want to hear this. Even if it's a thing where Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets and all the Jet fans could be jumping up and down, and I know a lot of them do not want to give up two first-round picks, but even them, I'm sure as giddy as they may be, and maybe they aren't as giddy as I thought they would be, I'm sure they just want to say, when he's on our team, then we can celebrate or we can murmur or whatever it is. Because until then, the conjecture, the rumors, everything that's going to build up and lead into whatever it's going to be is pointless. And I get it. That's what's going to move the needle. I get it. That's, And I understand I'm now just babbling away on this. But I'm saying this now because until he signs or stays or whatever it is, I'm going to discuss it then. Case closed. Now I can move on. Speaking of the Jets, they did a real Jet move over the course of the last few days when they hired Nathaniel Hackett as their offensive coordinator. Really? So they got rid of Mike LaFleur, who is the brother of the Packer coach. And of course, he came with Robert Sala from San Francisco. But for Nathaniel Hackett, I'm sure the Jet fans probably thinking, okay, he's not our coach, but the way things ended in Denver, him getting fired before the end of his first year as an NFL coach, why would I want to bring this guy on as my offensive coordinator? And I did mention at the time when he was fired, he's probably a better offensive coordinator. Granted that he was in Green Bay prior to that, and a lot of the thoughts, here we go, conjecture and rumors was when Nathaniel Hackett got the job in Denver that it looked like the Broncos were going to make a trade with Green Bay to bring Aaron Rodgers to the Mile High City. As we saw, that wasn't the case. Russell Wilson entered him in, and we saw what happened in Denver this past season. Now, you got to wonder whether or not Nathaniel Hackett going to East Rutherford, does that mean a trade could be consummated? Or here we go, that rumor mills I just mentioned, to where Aaron Rodgers is going to come east and continue with the green, but with the white, as a member of the New York Jets. If that's going to be the ploy, if that's what everybody's going to think that's going to be the case, all you got to do is just think back to a year ago with the scenario regarding Hackett going to Denver. Why would you automatically think that Aaron Rodgers is going to come to the Jets because Hackett all of a sudden now is the offensive coordinator there? That's not to say they're not going to entertain or engage with Green Bay on what they could do to bring the future Hall of Famer to the Jets. But it's not a guarantee or a slam dunk. And that's the thing. Oh, well, Nathaniel Hackett's going to the Jets. So right away, oh, it looks like Aaron Rodgers is going to come east. Didn't happen in Denver. Why would I expect it to happen with the Jets? And I get it that the Jets have already dealt with former Green Bay Packer quarterback legends in the past, i.e. Brett Favre. And look at how that turned out. But one more time, I don't understand why the Jets brought in Hackett where if you remember going back to, I want to say the Pete Carroll days, where they had Paul Hackett as their offensive coordinator and they wanted to run him out on the rail. Yeah, I believe that was before Parcells. I don't think it was after Parcells. It may have been after Parcells. Quite possibly, Paul Hackett could have been the offensive coordinator during the Herman Edwards years when he was a coach of the Jets. But anyway, why would you bring in Hackett? Bring in another guy. Don't bring in a guy who has the stench To me, that was similar to bringing Adam Gaze from Miami to becoming the Jet coach where he wasn't able to shake off what happened down there in Miami and now you're bringing him into the Jet fold and we saw what the Adam Gaze era was here in New York and I get it. He's not going to be your head coach, Hackett, but still, because of what happened in Denver, you want to have that mojo and have that just... Not me. If I'm a Jet fan, I would not be happy with that hire at all. And speaking of not being happy with hires, what about Steve Wilkes? Talk about getting a raw deal in Carolina. Frank Reich is now your coach of the Carolina Panthers. And I understand that in this day and age, you want to have an offensive mind to be at the helm of your team. Because as we all know, it's all about offense in the NFL. This isn't the 80s or the 70s where they had the doomsday defense, the steel curtain, the 85 Bears, even the 2000 Ravens to bring it to this century. We know that it's all about offense and trying to put up a lot of points and get the talent around a particular quarterback, etc. And Steve Wilkes, who did a very good job, and I understand that the Panthers lost some tough games down the stretch. 
The game in Tampa where they had a 21-10 lead there in the fourth quarter. The game earlier in Atlanta where they had that bomb where DJ Moore caught the touchdown. He takes off his helmet and they go for the extra point for the win. And what happens? He misses it and they lose in overtime. I get it. They lost some bad games. But Steve Wilkes did a very good job there and deserved to be the head coach of the Panthers. But he's a defensive coordinator by trade. He's a guy that is not going to tickle anybody's fancy by bringing in a hot name. And not to say that Frank Reich is that guy. We understand he has a little bit of a pedigree going back to his Eagle days, winning a Super Bowl as an offensive coordinator and having early success with the Colts there before fizzling and bottoming out this past year where he was let go. But I don't understand why David Tepper chose him instead of keeping it in-house where Wilkes did an admirable job with Sam Darnold of all people. So what? Now I'm supposed to believe that whomever they bring in as quarterback, and we have to wait and see on that, but let's just say if Sam Darnold is the guy that Frank Reich all of a sudden is going to make him out to be the number three overall pick that he was supposed to be when he was drafted in 2018 by the Jets. So I feel bad for Steve Wilkes and with him being African-American, I'm sure you could also go with that angle to say, oh, geez, here was a guy who did very well and a guy like Jeff Saturday, not to pick on him, but he was brought in by the owner, Jim Irsay, and next thing you know, he wins that first game in Vegas. Maybe that was more in Vegas than it was the Colts. Didn't win a game the rest of the year and... For all intents and purposes, have the Colts announced who their next head coach is? I don't even think I've heard a peep out of Indianapolis. And then Wilkes gets shafted here to the point where you bring in a retread in Frank Reich. I hate to say it like that, but as I mentioned, how everything turned out in Indianapolis in the middle part of the year. And now you have a scenario where Wilkes is out in the street and he's deserving of at least maybe having a two-year extension. You want to give him this one year with the next year after that as an option? Fine. But that was just a joke. But hey, we'll see how this is all going to unfold here, the offseason, and what's happened over the course of the last few days since the last podcast. And all I got to say is this, again, no more Aaron Rodgers, no more Tom Brady, and now we have the Super Bowl to look forward to. So that's what I have with the NFL as we can now move on to some other things. I'm going to put on my high tops and go to the NBA, and I understand the game Saturday night which was a very good game, hotly contested, Lakers-Celtics, and they had two very good games this year. If you remember the game in LA where the Celtics got off to a big lead and then the Lakers, I believe off the top of my head, went on a 47-13 to run. And then they had a 14-point lead with about three and a half minutes to go and then the Celtics came back, tied the game, and then won in an overtime to where you had a scenario Saturday night in Boston where the... Lakers, Celtics, it came down to the final play at 105 up. And prior to that, you had a scenario where Jalen Brown had a putback, was fouled, made a free throw, and then LeBron, as he's going to the basket, gets hacked. And I'm sorry. As I've said in the past, I'm a LeBron supporter. I'm not a fan. I'm not a big fan. But I admire what he's done throughout the course of his career, etc. But for him to act the way he did on the court after that foul, you would think that they tried to take his head off. And I understand that he was full of emotion there and he was right 100% that he was fouled by Jason Tatum and it was clear that there should have been a whistle, he should have had free throws and chances would have been that the Lakers would have won the game. And it's funny because in real time and even with the replays because I was more focused on to make sure if there was a foul and we saw that it was clearly that. But then yesterday as I'm watching just various clips yesterday late morning, getting ready for the championship games. Watching that play over again, not for nothing. LeBron traveled from Boston to New York where he took three giant steps to the basket and a travel should have been called. So you know what? I guess the basketball gods or maybe the officiating gods said, all right, you should have had been called there for a foul, but guess what? You did walk and travel pretty much from the top of the key into the lane going to the basket to the left side, and because that wasn't called, therefore he didn't get the foul on Tatum to where the Lakers could have won the game, and they played well in the game, and when you think about it, probably deserved to win the game. I got to call it as I see it, but there was a travel that the officials missed, and maybe because he's LeBron, I don't know, but as it was, it went into overtime, the Celtics were able to prevail, and I will say this, just watching that final minute, Darvin Ham, I don't know what the hell was going on there. Bad possessions, 
not getting back on D on that one play there. Also, with the game, I understand it was out of hand. It was 121 to 118. Oh, excuse me, was it 122-118? Whatever the final score was, they won by four points. 11.8 seconds to go as the ball was inbounded. And LeBron is just casually dribbling the ball up the court as if it was the second quarter. And then they had a couple of passes. They gave it to Anthony Davis at the top of the key for three as if there was no immediacy, no urgency. I didn't understand that. And then Darvin Ham brings in Westbrook, who I understand gave you a little bit of effort in that overtime, had a put back there, and did not play the, the entire fourth quarter. So all of a sudden, he shifted and pivoted to put Westbrook in the game in overtime when Westbrook was awful in the game. Westbrook was missing shots left and right. The crowd was even encouraging him to shoot from the perimeter or behind the arc every time he had the ball. So I didn't understand Darvin Ham's coaching there toward the end of the game, which I was very puzzled and... I don't know if they just checked out at that point after the foul by LeBron because Jalen Brown then had seven straight points to start the overtime and the Celtics went on the win and sweep the season series and in the process snapped their three-game losing streak by upending the Lakers who come to town. In fact, as this current moment, they play the Brooklyn Nets tonight out at Barclays before heading to the Garden tomorrow night. And I don't get this. Both LeBron James... And Anthony Davis are out of tonight's game. LeBron has ankle soreness. And as we all know, with Anthony Davis nursing that foot injury, which he has been playing here over the last couple of games. And I guess maybe they wanted to rest to play tomorrow at the Garden because they probably feel that the Garden, they'd rather play on that stage as opposed to the Barclays Center. But how's that fair to the Brooklyn Net fan, the 35 of you that are out there, or even the small kid that the parents are taking to go to the Barclays Center to want to see LeBron James come into that building for the only time this year. And then you find out, not today, not tonight, right before the game time, but you find out yesterday that he's going to be out of the game because of ankle soreness. LeBron, what are we doing here? And I get it that he's now 117 points away from passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for the all-time scoring list in NBA history, as I talked about there on Tuesday, or excuse me, last Thursday. And I understand they still have tomorrow at the Garden in Indiana on Thursday before going to New Orleans on Saturday. And considering that he's 117 points, he has to average less than 40 points over these three games. So, all right, let's give him a break here in Brooklyn so then, if he does play the next three games, we could set himself up to have him break the record in L.A. at home. But for what? I understand the Lakers have had a pretty much a lost season. I understand they're still hanging around. They're still involved. But LeBron's not a Laker. I understand that it's all about the glitz, the glam. They want to have it in their building to celebrate this. But I think, in my heart, that's what this is all about. Let him rest. Ankle soreness. I mean, really, LeBron? Maybe it's not all on him. It's more on the team. But this team's trying to fight for their lives to try to make it to the postseason. And I get it that there's still about 30-some-odd games to go, but come on. That's just a bad job. But that's not just the Lakers. That's everybody else. And that goes back to Greg Popovich years ago when he sat out Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, pretty much his whole team at times when they had a TNT game or an ESPN game. He says, "Uh uh-uh, I got to rest my guys. So to think, even though we look at Kawhi Leonard as the poster boy for load management, We got to hang that on Greg Popovich for being the godfather of load management because he's the one that started this whole trend or this whole whatever you want to call it. And it's a disaster for a team like the Lakers who only comes here once a year and is unable to play because, oh, I got to rest my ankle because it's not feeling well. That is the NBA in 2023 and has been pretty much over the last 8 to 10 years. Very sad to say. And then you have Luka Doncic, who's been out with a sprained left ankle day-to-day. He hurt in the first quarter of that game against Phoenix. So you got to keep an eye on that, whether or not he's going to be out for any extended time. They did say day-to-day, but he did suffer a mild sprain of his ankle. So we're going to have to wait and see what's going to happen there, especially with the All-Star break in a couple of weeks. But the NBA overall, the race out west from the four seed where the Clippers stand at 28 and 25, seven and a half games behind Denver, who has the top spot in the Western Conference. From four to 13, where the Lakers are currently standing with a 23 and 27 record, those nine teams 
Think about this. They're separated by three and a half games. And when you even want to break it down further, if you want to even look at, let's say, Golden State, who currently is sixth in the Western Conference, you have four teams that are tied at eight and a half. Now, their records are different because of percentage points, etc. Golden State 25 and 24. Dallas, New Orleans, Phoenix are all 26 and 25. The Jazz are at 500 at 26 and 26. Then you have OKC, 24-25, Portland, 23-26, and then LA, 23-27. That is going to be a Royal Rumble for the ages. Now, I understand nobody's going to care. And if you're a Laker fan, you're probably the only team that is worthy because not many people are going to look at, let's say, Utah, OKC, even with Damian Lillard, who had 60 points there last week. Even the Trailblazers, not many people are going to rally around them to see them make a playoff push or at least be part of the playing scenario. I understand Dallas with Doncic, Golden State, the defending champs, those teams, even New Orleans, a young team that a lot of people want to see once Zion comes back to see how they're going to perform and they have not played well. They've actually lost eight in a row and Zion is still a couple of weeks back from returning. But that whole cluster from four to 13 is going to be a fight to the finish which is still another 30 games left in the season. But if you're a diehard NBA fan or even a good NBA fan, that is going to be the one race a lot of people are going to look out for. Now, granted, they're going to be sacrificial lambs probably in the long run to the Denvers, to the Memphises of the world, to teams like that. But we'll have to wait and see how this all unfolds here between now and the early part of April, which is still a little more than two months from now. And then in the East, I know the Sixers are blazing. They had a big win there against the Nuggets on that Saturday afternoon game where you had that triple header there on ABC. Embiid, who's been a beast here, as we all know, and was shunned of an all-star starting nod. To me, at the end of the day, I understand I'm not a player, but that's neither here nor there unless he had a $50,000 bonus in his contract for making the all-star team as a starter. Who knows, but Embiid has played phenomenal and is looking like an MVP candidate. They've won seven in a row. And they're just a game back in the loss of the Celtics. 36-15 and 15 are Boston and the Sixers 32-16. and 16. As the East will continue to be top-heavy with them. The Bucks. you want to sprinkle in the Nets who Kevin Durant looks like he's coming around but is still not able to get back into the lineup with that knee issue. So we'll have to wait and see how that's going to shake down. If I'm the Nets, I would hold him off until after the All-Star break. He's coming back when he is not 100%. Although Kyrie's played well, but we all know that once Durant comes back, he is the focal point of this team, and I would think is the unquestioned leader, although he's not that leadership type, but we all know Durant is the guy that is going to be front and center as far as any opportunity for the Brooklyn Nets to win a championship is all going to be on number seven on his shoulders to lead. So that's what we have there with the NBA for the most part. As I turn my attention to the ice with the NHL, the Bruins, as I was extolling their praises the other day, talking about how they have 80 points, they're on a quest for an 140-point season and 66 wins, which would both be NHL records for the regular season. What have they done since then? They've only lost three in a row. And they lose to a hot Hurricane team last night. And the Hurricanes have played very well. They've won five in a row. And even though I talked about them last week, knowing that they're not going to have Max Pacioretty, a guy that they brought in to be that leader, to add some goal scoring to a team that, although they lead the league in shots, but they're in the middle of the pack when it comes to goal scoring. But the Hurricanes, I got to see it. They had a big regular season last year, and they fizzled out in the postseason, as we saw there last year against the Hurricanes, excuse me, against the Lightning. My apologies there. And we have to, wait a second, I take that back. They actually lost to the Rangers in the conference semifinals. I got my years mixed up because two years ago, the Canes did lose to the Lightning on the quest for their second Stanley Cup, Tampa Bay that is. Last year, the Canes lost in the second round to the Rangers. It was a whole my series until game seven when they got shut out there in their own building, Carolina that is. So although they played very well this year and they're certainly going to be a threat, you would think, but to me, I believe it when I see it. But the Bruins hit a little bit of a speed bump. Let's see what that means. I'm sure they're not looking at the President's Trophy as far as trying to beat any regular season records. They just want to continue to play well, which they have. 
They're due to have a little bit of a lull, which we've seen here so far. But the Hurricanes, like I mentioned, winners of five in a row, and they've been hot here in the NHL. And despite some other teams that are trying to creep up in the standings, I know in the Metropolitan Division, I'll keep it there for a second. The Islanders won a couple of games. Big whoop there, my beloved Islanders. But the rest of the league is pretty much, I'm not going to say it's a standstill, but not much has happened here over the course of the last few days since we last met that we could really say this team is on a roll or this team is looking to make an impact. So the NHL, as we lead into the All-Star break where the skills competition is on Friday, the All-Star game is Saturday, with the break in between the Super Bowl, good time for the NHL to showcase their talent. And then, of course, the NBA All-Star game will be the week after the Super Bowl. But first up for the NHL, as the final games of the quote-unquote first half will be on Wednesday. And as we get to Thursday, and even more so next Monday, because there's not going to be a lot to discuss, but I'll get into a quote-unquote second-half preview of the NHL season a week from today and kind of take a look at the lay of the land as where these teams stand when it comes to the National Hockey League. Let me get to the Australian Open as we have the first Grand Slam in the books. Novak Djokovic, to no one's surprise. And Djokovic, who won his 10th Australian Open there yesterday, down under. His 22nd career Grand Slam to tie him with Rafael Nadal all-time. And it's going to lead into a French Open at the end of May. And all we could hope for for the 316 tennis fans that are out there, that Rafael Nadal has this hip issue going back to when he lost early in the tournament, early last week that is, to a one Mackenzie McDonald, where if all goes well with Nadal throughout his recovery, six to eight weeks to get himself prepped and ready to go for the French Open, as we all know, that's his surface at Roland Garros, and we can only hope that the bracket for that tournament has Nadal on one side and Djokovic on the other. Preferably one and two. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Does that mean after the win there by Djokovic yesterday, is he the number one ranked tennis player in the world? I know Carlos Alcaraz was coming into this year, and we know Alcaraz didn't play because of a leg injury. But because of the scenario where you have Djokovic, Nadal, and them going for what would be an all-time record 23rd Grand Slam victory, we would only hope that the stage will be set over those two weeks at Roland Garros to have, not in the quarterfinal as we saw last year, not in a semifinal, but in the final, to have both the Joker and Rafa head-to-head, not only to go for the tournament victory at the French, but also to become the number one leader all time when it comes to Grand Slam men's singles tournament wins. I hope we get to see it. I think not only tennis needs that in the worst way because things have been fractured here with Djokovic being out of the fold for so long, pretty much the whole entire year when you think about it. I know he played the French last year, but obviously not in Wimbledon and U.S. Open. But now that everything is in the clear where Djokovic now is refreshed and re-energized, and I would think that that year off probably helped him more than hurt him Although that guy is a machine. And I would have to say, as much as I love Rafael Nadal, and we can't forget about Roger Federer, I don't think there is any qualms of me saying, not necessarily qualms, but I don't think there is any argument to think that when it's all said and done, you could even argue right now that Novak Djokovic is the best men's player of all time. The guy is a robot. The guy is, can I say assassin? To a certain extent, I would look at Nadal as more of that assassin-like figure because he cuts out these games. But Djokovic, the guy is almost a cyborg-like. I don't know how else to put it. But he's back on the scene. Wednesday, yesterday, in straight sets over Stefano Tsitsipas, who Tsitsipas had a very good tournament himself. I understand you didn't have a lot of the big players there. Kasper Ruud out, Medvedev, no Alcaraz, Nadal out. I get it. But maybe, and even Nick Kyrgios, a guy that was looking to maybe even elevate this year, considering the back half of his last year when it comes to the major tournaments. But now, we're going to wait for the French and see how that will all shake down at that time. And hopefully, it does end up being Nadal and Djokovic for the French Open tournament. 
As far as the women's side, you had Arena Sabalenka beat Elena Rybakina in your women's final. Sabalenka, her first ever women's title where we saw Coco Goff out, Jessica Pagula out. We saw a lot of the top American players out. And for Sabalenka to not only get to a final, but to win it, I'm sure that's got to put some gas in her tank. We saw Iga Swiatek out early, and that really made it even that much more wide open for the women's side to see who's going to come out on top. And as we saw there, Sabalenka winning the women's side of the Australian Open. And now we can sit back for a couple of months, really till springtime, till the middle of May, to where we get another crack at a major tournament and a Grand Slam, as I talked about. So the tennis fan could put their feet up until then. And then lastly, I want to touch on a couple of baseball notes. I did not bring this up on Thursday because it was all about Scott Rowland and how he should not have been a Hall of Famer. And if you didn't listen to that, go back to it at the 49.58 mark of the previous podcast on Thursday. So, But two quickies, or really three. Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, who looked like he was about to sell the team, and that was to the exhale of many fans in Orange County when it comes to the Anaheim Angels. But early last week, he decided that they are no longer for sale. He talks about being committed to a franchise record player payroll where he has not only Mike Trout, also Anthony Rendon, who has not played, which has been a bust of a contract. And then with Shohei Otani, who's going to be looking for a big payday and how he wants to bring back a World Series championship to Orange County. Put your money where your mouth is, Artie Moreno. All I'm going to say is is that if there are any trade rumors, unless you're going to get the house... Cars, the guest house, and all the property in the world for your former MVP player, do not trade him. Because if you're talking about wanting to bring a World Series back, you have to keep Otani in the fold. And whatever rumors that are out there, no matter whether it's the Mets, Dodgers, another team that needs pitching, you want to throw in the Yankees just for the hell of it, you can. But if you're committed to winning, you cannot by any stretch, unless you're getting the sun, moon, stars in the entire galaxy. For Otani, you do whatever it takes to keep him as an angel for life. That's all I'll say about that. Mike Clevenger, I don't know what's going to happen with this investigation. We know that Clevenger was on the come up when he was with the Indians at the time, now the Guardians, where he was a pitcher that was very good, very solid. It looked like he could have been a bonafide two, maybe even a soft one to lead your rotation. But ever since he got traded to San Diego and now gets traded again here in the offseason to the Chicago White Sox, now we're going to have to wait and see what's going to happen here because you could have a scenario where he may get suspended by Major League Baseball or if not by the team based on these allegations of child abuse, domestic incidents with his wife. Not only that, but also his moms. They said the two moms, so I'm assuming his mother-in-law and as well as his mom just... Awful behavior, whether you're throwing chew spit at his kids for screaming and strangling them. Just terrible stories that have come out regarding Mike Clevenger, the pitcher, where who knows what his future is going to be. And if we come off of this one suspension by Trevor Bauer, who still has to, I believe has 42 more games to go. But if he had two years, and even though I got knocked down to 192, but if these allegations are true, what does this mean for Clevenger? Is it going to be out for three years? Is it going to be indefinite? Who knows? But that's something that I get it. Is he a top flight pitcher? Is he a Trevor Bauer who won a Cy Young Award? A guy that's going to be an anchor in anybody's rotation? No, he is not. But he has had some success here in the major leagues. He did have the Tommy John surgery, which he didn't pitch for a year and a half. And now with these allegations bubbling to the surface, who knows what his future is going to look like. So that's something we'll have to keep an eye on. And then the Mets signed Jeff McNeil, four years, $50 million extension. It could go up to $63 million with a club option. So they inked their second baseman, who's going to stick around here. He'll be 31, I believe, the week after opening day. So now it's Pete Alonso who's going to be on deck as he goes into his fifth year. And you wonder if the Mets are going to tear up his contract and see if they could sign him to an extension, which you know is going to be starting off somewhere and not knowing who his representation is, but... It's going to be somewhere, I would think, between 175 to 225 million. So we'll have to wait and see on that. And one last thing: think about this, people. 
This is how fast time flies. Four weeks ago today, we were talking about how pitchers and catchers are going to report in six weeks. Now that's two weeks from tomorrow. Boy, I tell you, time just keeps on ticking, keeps on flying by. And if you don't manage it or aren't aware or cognizant of it, it's just going to pass you by. So people, live for the moment, live for the present, do what's best as I'm doing right now. Sharing my sports knowledge, wisdom, opinions, etc. with you guys and gals. And I thank you so much for hopping on board to listen to what it is I have to say. Which will now put an end to the podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. Your participation is never for granted. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. As I mentioned at the very top. Let's increase the visibility. Put it out there. Social media. Take a screenshot. Send it to me. I'll pass it along. It will do wonders for the podcast. And again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Speaking of socials, you want to hit me up? You can go to Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels One, just the number. If you want to hit me up with a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy, dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth. Goes 100% to this production, the upkeep of the website, equipment, as I've said time after time, to make this experience into this microphone, to your earbuds or speakers, that much more enjoyable, pleasurable, entertaining, thought-provoking, whatever it may be, because like I say, I'm not going anywhere, people. As long as I'm alive, this is what I've been built to do. Born with this, the gift to spread my thoughts, opinions, feelings, analysis, Praise, critiques with fire, passion, fury, energy on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to the South East to the South Center to the South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>